You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Hi, uh, welcome to the program. Um, it's Intelligent Talk, and the website is intelligenttalk.com, one word. We're here with Mr. James Robinalt, and he wrote the book January 1973. Um, and it's a very interesting book, and it has a lot of parallels coming together in that momentous month and year. So, Mr. Robinot, thank you for coming on the program today. Happy to be on, Ralph. Thank you. So, if I could just um, – obviously, you do a lot of you, – you write a number of interesting books. You also do a uh, lecture, I believe, with John Dean, who was Nixon's lawyer. And basically, it's to educate lawyers, as I understand, uh, confronting ethics, what they do if they're confronted with illegality. Is that basically correct? Yeah, we met some years ago um, – and uh, probably around 2010, I went to a uh, continuing legal education program, which lawyers are required to do, and called John that night. And he said, why don't we do one on Watergate? And I said, sure. And little did I know that uh, almost 10 years later, we've done about 150 programs around the country. So we've done a lot of them. That's great. Well, if I could, I'll just start with your book, please. So. I mean, you see January 73 as a, as a very momentous month, and I'll just, if I could summarize and let you comment, because a number of things come together. Basically, Roe versus Wade, the beginning of the Watergate trials, and the end of uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Not, obviously, the evacuation of the embassy in 1975, but the end of U.S. ground troops in 1973. And I think you referenced, obviously, a book, January 1865, was like your model for this book. Was that correct? Yeah, April 1865. April 1865, yes. Yeah. So could you please comment just on the trends that you see coming together that I just briefly summarized? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, in doing this program with John Dean, uh, the first thing we did is we addressed the week after the break-in, the break-in, and when he came back, he's White House counsel. He was actually overseas the weekend that it happened, came back to the United States to find this mess in Washington. He was 34 years old which is almost hard to believe, um, and he's walking around the White House and other places getting everybody's confession, if you will, about what just happened. Then he had to deal with it. So we kind of based a program around the week, and then the second program that we did, because it was so successful, the first one, was to march through to, to take that from the summer of 72, when the break-in happened, all the way to the following March in 73, when John Dean goes into the Oval Office and tells Nixon there's a cancer growing on his presidency, and if he doesn't stop it, it's going to kill his presidency. As we put that program together, I noticed the significance of January 73, which we had to mark through. For Watergate purposes, it is the Watergate burglars trial. So while Nixon won the, his reelection in November of 72 by a huge landslide, the third biggest in American history, um, you know, here we are three months later in the Watergate burglars trials about to happen, and that will be kind of 
the beginning of the end of his presidency. Um, so that's a huge event, what happens in that trial, which had never been really carefully reported on. Um, but then I started noticing other things. I noticed that um, the day that Henry Kissinger flew back to um, Paris to initial the, the Vietnam Peace Accords, um, that afternoon or that morning, the Supreme Court came out and Harry Blackman read Roe versus Wade. And later that same day, this is January 22, Lyndon Johnson dropped dead in Texas. Um, so it was kind of this, Truman had just died at the end of December, kind of this symbolic end of the New Deal, uh, this very real end of the Great Society, um, killed not only by the Nixon counter-revolution, but by the, you know, the war in Vietnam, which was, you know, finally ending uh, for the United States. And then Roe v. Wade comes along, and Roe really supercharges things, and I think has a lot to do with the politics we have today and the the fact that people won't compromise with their political opponents. They now see them as evil and enemies and things like that. So I just ended up saying, man, this is one powerful month. It's really worth writing about, and, and it, it turned out to be that. Right. I, I think you referenced that it was sort of like the end of sort of the counterculture or reaction against the 60s. It was a time when the South flipped Republican, kind of like the death of the 60s. And as you said, the current state of politics that we're in today was sort of formed during this period. And that's sort of an interesting – the Reagan Revolution, I think you say, you mark it from the early 70s when this occurred. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think people put the benign face on it with the Reagan Revolution and calling it the Reagan Revolution, but it really is the Nixon counter-revolution. It's the, as you say, the South turns from totally Democratic to totally Republican. Uh, uh, religion enters our politics in a very big way, um, and it is, the, it is the beginning of this huge um, counterpunch in politics, and it's really a counter-revolution. It's really trying to stop what people thought were the excesses of the Great Society and the um, you know, all the chaos from the civil rights movement and the, uh, you know, the anti-Vietnam War protests of the 60s. Yes, your book is fascinating. Of course, it's always fascinating to read about Nixon. And of the three events, some of the things you mentioned, like Nixon was tapping Kissinger. He was jealous of Kissinger getting too much praise for essentially ending the Vietnam War. But what I wanted to focus on is, is the Watergate trial. And you mentioned that the judge there, Judge Sirica, I believe, he sort of gets involved and sort of acts like a prosecutor to get information out of these people that maybe was inappropriate. But in the end, he was correct. There was this massive conspiracy. Do you sort of somewhat uncomfortable what the judge did, but yet you feel it was appropriate given the results? Or Yeah, you know, I, it's, when I was younger, uh, and I was high school age when Watergate happened, um, you know, Sirica was kind of a hero, and he was Time's Man of the Year. And at, then, you know, once I looked at it as a lawyer now, all these many years later after practicing law, um, I recognized um, that he really was acting very one-sided, which is not what a judge is supposed to do. Uh, he really, he, as he said, he smelled a, what he, he called it a whitewasher, but he really thought that uh, people were lying to him. In fact, they were. Uh, but he put his, his thumb on the scale and really pressed hard in a lot of ways. He did a couple things that were wrong for a judge. He had ex, ex parte uh, just with the prosecutors alone. In other words, he spoke only with the prosecutors without defense counsel being there. He really pushed the defendants to plead guilty and not just plead guilty to one or two things, but to everything. He threatened them with 40 years in jail if they didn't talk. He was then going to throw them in front of a grand jury after they pled guilty so that they could no longer claim the Fifth Amendment. Um, it was just, it was very, very, very over the top by a judge. 
Uh, and you know, the, and you stand back and you say, well, as you just said, he's right. You know, they were he was being lied to, but that's not the way the justice system is supposed to work. And it's it really was highly flawed. And I just thought it was important to really write it as it happened, um, so that people can look at it and not just deify this guy, but to say, you know, there were some really questionable things that went on in that trial. May I ask you, just, just Watergate is what I find of the three events the, the most fascinating. And as I understand it, when these burglars were caught in the Watergate complex, that was the second time they were breaking in. Is, is that correct? That wasn't the first time. Yeah, they they had, and, you know, we as I say, we go around the country, John and I do, uh, speaking about it. And at one point he says, you know, um, Gordon Liddy liked to, one of the main Watergate uh, masterminds, Gordon uh Liddy liked to think of himself as a as a James Bond type character. He said he actually never rose to the uh, Maxwell Smart standard. <laughs> uh, and you know it's true. This is sometimes some part of this is keep down cops. I mean it is they had they had they had gone in to plant bugs um, towards the end of May, and it turns out that they put him in the wrong office for one, and that a couple of them were kind of on the fritz. And so this was the second time they went in, and uh, they not only that, but they also knew that uh, a maintenance guy had removed tape on the, in the basement of the Watergate that they had put on one of the doors so they could go in through the basement up through the uh, to the sixth floor, uh, and somebody had removed the tape they put there to keep the door open, and you know they knew uh, they had all sorts of red flags that somebody might know what's going on, and in fact that's what leads to the guy calling the, the police who then show up and arrest him. May I just ask, because the Watergate is, is, first of all, obviously it was, a, it was part of a series of illegal activities. Number one, they had broken into Daniel Ellsberg, the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers, his psychiatrist's office, and there were other things that, uh, that, that the Nixon administration had done as well. But just focusing on the Watergate break-in, was that ordered by John Mitchell, the attorney general? Is that the person who gave the go-ahead for it? Yeah, the best evidence is that um, Mitchell had moved back to uh, head up the committee to reelect the president. So he had been attorney general. Prior to that, he did run Nixon's 68 campaign, and Nixon felt he owed his, his job to him because he did such a good job. So he brought him back to that role. And right at, at almost the same time that he came back into that role, uh, the, the plans for the Watergate break-in were run past him and a guy named Jeb Magruder, who was the guy who had been running, a younger guy who had been running the committee to reelect the president. And according to all the testimony and everything uh, in uh, confessions that uh, Mitchell privately made to John Dean and to Haldeman, he knew about it and authorized the operation. Uh, and that's that really is what sunk him ultimately. There are a number of theories, and people have speculated as to why it was done. One of the theories I read is that I believe Howard Hughes has had given a loan to Nixon's brother, and they were concerned that Larry O'Brien, the head of the Democratic Party, might have some info on that loan. Do, do you have any any uh, knowledge on that or what or what John D. might think as to what the reason is they were so intent upon getting that bug in for Larry O'Brien? You know, there's a, there's a lot of um, speculation about that sort of thing, and, and uh, Howard Hughes is always kind of murky in the background. He did... Uh, give money to Nick, uh, Richard Nixon's brother, um, and there was concern. There was concern that Larry O'Brien, as a lot of people knew about it, and 
um, th- some of that. But I think, based on everything that I've done, all the tapes I've listened to, talking with John Dean uh, for the last decade, I think the best uh, the best thinking about it is that they were going in there just as a part of um, operations that you know political foes do against each other, going in to try and find dirt. Uh, and I think, in to some extent, they were looking for financial documents. There were rumors that the uh, Democrats were receiving money from uh, Cuba and, and through communist sources. Um, and so there was some of that that they were looking for. But I think it was just a general going and take as many pictures as you can, as, as many documents, and see if you can find something, and also be online to kind of find out, you know, put in these bugs to kind of find out generally what's going on in the campaign and that sort of thing. So it was just classic, you know, political chicanery that was going on. Forgive me, this is just a basic question, because John may may have told you this. I just don't remember if he said this or not. Does John Dean think that Nixon, I mean, as I understand, the official thing is that there's no evidence Nixon ordered the break and that what he did is he tried to cover it up. And obviously, John Dean goes in and says there's a cancer on the presidency. These people could cost a million dollars to keep quiet. Nixon says, well, I know we can get a million dollars. And John Dean correctly testified about that. But then there's that missing 18 minutes of tape where Rosemary Woods, Nixon's secretary, said, oh, I accidentally erased the tape. And she's stretching her arm out to show she could have you know, accidentally hit the um, erase button, which strains credibility. But does John Dean or do you have an opinion as to Nixon, whether he order the break-in or knew about it ahead of time? Yeah, he has a very strong opinion that Nixon did not know about it. Okay. His most recent book, which is called um, The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It, um, is based on his review of over a 1,000 Watergate tapes, many of which had never been listened to before. He's he's almost completely certain that Nixon had no idea about that break-in. But he definitely knew about other uh, potential break-ins, including... Um, not the Ellsberg one, interestingly enough, but there was a, a point in 71 after Ellsberg came forward with the Pentagon Papers um, that Nixon can be heard on a tape telling them to break into the Brookings Institute to get that or some other information that he wanted that he thought they had in their safe. So he clearly he authorized break-ins, um, but he did not um, he didn't know anything about this one. And so you know, once it does happen, then his big concern is that his friend John Mitchell did know about it, and that really is the beginning of the cover-up that week when he decides that they're going to try to just keep it quiet as opposed to um, tell what they knew, which is that, you know, Liddy and Hunt and had been authorized by the committee to do this. One of the funniest things that I, I thinking about um, John Dean is that Nixon calls him when he's a, when John Dean is obviously starting to cooperate with, I think, the prosecutors, and he says, I want you to know, John, you're still my lawyer. Kind of a very right. sin- kind of a sincere comment. I mean, obviously, I'm saying that sarcastically, but it's kind of funny. They was trying to keep him in the fold when all this stuff was was breaking. Um, if I could, I've heard John Dean a little bit testify about Trump, and you wrote another book on uh, Warren Harding and his mistress, who had ties to Germany when he was, a, I believe, right. when Warren Harding was a senator before he became president. Right. And so just tying it sort of to Trump now, if I could, with Trump, obviously, to the fear is the ties with Russia. And do you just in your opinion as a historian, having written this book and what you know about the Russia ties with Trump and the activities that he's done to possibly obstruct justice? Do you have any opinion as to where this stands in relationship to Watergate, whether it's more serious or less serious or on the same par? I think it's a lot more serious than Watergate, because I think Watergate was confined to our borders. You know, it's one party against another. Um, you know, all during 
during those times, I mean, um, we know that uh, Lyndon Johnson abused his wiretapping authority um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, this whole idea of one party going after another and dirty tricks and things like that, both sides had their fill of it. None of it's right. doesn't make it right that they both did it, but it really was Americans against Americans. And the real seriousness of what's going on now with the Russia investigation is that if it's true, and I can tell you right now, I think there is, I think there is something to it. I don't, I don't, I think a lot of this evidence is staring us right in the face. Um, but if it's true, then it is extremely serious because there you've got one of our real enemies, a foreign power interfering in in an election, um, and that's just to me one of the most dangerous things you can think about for a country, um, uh, any country, let alone a democracy like ours, that requires you know good faith in what's going on in in when we vote. And so I just think it's a it's an extremely serious charge. It's a, extremely serious time. And I think that um, all of this discrediting of Mueller and everything else is, uh, to me, a sign that there's guilt. Um, It just is. I have no idea how it's going to play out, but I think it's extremely serious. I think it's much more serious than what was going on during Watergate. May I ask you a question, just as a lawyer and as a historian, as someone who's good friends with John Dean, just on, particularly if we focus on, on pardons, there is a fear that Trump may pardon Manafort or people that could obviously implicate him. And obviously they can maybe go after Manafort on state charges, which are not subject to a federal pardon. But just in, in your opinion, talking to Dean, would it be obstruction of justice to pardon someone who could potentially incriminate you in a crime? And therefore, would that be an improper pardon and potentially unconstitutional. In other words, is there a check on the president's pardon power if it would let him get away with a crime, in your opinion? Yeah. In fact, I've written a lot about this. We teach about it in our courses. Um, Start off with the the first basic principle is that the pardon power is one of the most unlimited powers of the uh, presidency in the Constitution in Article 2. There's no, you know, judicial review of it. There is no uh, congressional can overturn a pardon. It is really an unlimited power. And Alexander Hamilton wrote that this should be a very unfettered power. When they were thinking about it back at the time they put together the Constitution, they were thinking of, in general, the sovereign's right to pardon. And there was some discussion, should you have, you know, a committee from Congress plus the president, you know, how would you do it? Ultimately, it was decided it really should be the chief executive who does it. And it, you know, the one of the ideas they had is, say you had a rebellion out west somewhere and you wanted to stop the rebellion, but at the end of the day, you didn't want to punish them in such a way that alienated the population. You could have, you know, the chief executive issue a pardon uh, in that kind of a circumstance. So it was meant to be very unlimited, very unfettered. Um, and uh, so there's no question that, um, there is a power for Trump to pardon Manafort uh, for his federal crimes, not state crimes, as you said, for federal crimes. He could definitely pardon him for that. But that doesn't answer the question about whether or not the exercise of that power is in, in itself an obstruction of justice. And the example that I use with people is say somebody came to the president and said, I've got my brother-in-law, uh, he's, in, he's in real trouble, I'll give you a million dollars if you pardon him. Um, that's just clearly a bribe. It's a crime if that happens. And nobody would say that that's not a crime, even though there is a power to pardon. 
And even though if you exercise that power, that person may be pardoned and remain pardoned, that doesn't mean that you, in doing that, haven't committed a crime. And same with obstruction of justice. If, if you are doing this to keep somebody quiet, to keep them from, uh, you know, working with investigators, that's obstruction of, obstructing a proceeding. Richard Nixon and John Dean, interestingly enough, actually talked about this on one tape. Um, and it is in the same tape of the million-dollar conversation where John is warning about the cancer on the presidency. It's March 21, 1973. And they get to the point where they're talking about how um, Howard Hunt wants to be pardoned, and there's been a promise that he would be pardoned uh, that Nixon had given that's on tape. And uh, Dean essentially says, you know, Hunt now, it just would look terrible after he's testified, but he wants a pardon or he's going to blow and, you know, it just would be too hot for us to handle. And Nixon said, yeah, you probably couldn't even do it until after the election, meaning the 74 election. And John said, even then, you know, it would be an obstruction of justice. And Nixon himself on tape says, no, you're right, it would be wrong. Mm. Um, So it is, you know, if you want to hear from Richard Nixon, he would tell you, that you can obstruct justice by offering to pardon somebody for improper purposes. Not that he doesn't have the power to pardon them and not that they wouldn't remain pardoned, but it, if it's a crime that's being committed in the process, that can still stands. And I would just refer people to your book to learn more about Howard Hunt because um, you mentioned in the book that Howard does an airplane crash and uh, Howard Hunt, uh, uh, the money that's tied to Howard Hunt, that's been given to Howard Hunt, is dispersed in this airplane crash. And what an ironic thing that because of this crash is one of the main reasons why the investigation got going, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, that part of it I'd never known before I started working on this. I didn't know that either, yeah. uh, You know, there's Howard Hunt's wife, who probably was also a CIA agent, um, uh, they have, they had four kids. Um, some of them are still alive. I think uh, maybe all of them are still alive, but, um, she became the pay mistress for the, for the hush money that was being paid to keep everybody quiet. And on December 8th, uh, she gets on a plane in Washington to fly to Chicago and she has $10,000 in brand new hundred dollar bills in her purse. And this plane crashes at Midway. Uh, she's killed, remarkably, about 18 people on that plane survive. People in Chicago remember this crash. Um, and but and her purse remains intact, and they find this $10,000 of money. And there's a lot of back and forth about what's this going to mean. And on the tapes, Nixon asking everyone, you know, are they going to figure this out kind of thing. And they all said, Hunt essentially said, you know, she was – she was taking that money to invest in in Howard Johnson's or something like that with a cousin in Chicago, just some some sort of cover story um, that that let it left it there. Oddly enough, today I think the press would not let something like that go, but uh, back then it, it just it walked away. But the problem was Hunt was despondent. Now he had younger kids, including one of the daughters who had been in a car accident and had some brain damage, and he didn't want them to be essentially orphaned while he spent. 40 years in prison because of Watergate. So he asked his friend Chuck Colson in the White House to ask Nixon to, to agree to pardon him at some point. And he got a kind of an implicit, uh, you know, after a year in jail, you'll you'll be let out. Um, so that clearly is on a tape that Nixon is talking with Colson about. And 
it does you know it's very problematic that, that's very interesting how you can go back in time because all those great tapes that we have which are fascinating to listen to and many of them are referenced in verbatim in your book that nixon himself said that would be obstruction of justice as you said agreeing with dean so and essentially no one says that richard nixon was nothing but at least a smart person so that's his own opinion yeah. as a as a uh, as a lawyer and as a president of the united states and that's sort of apropos i guess for today as to what um, people would answer, I guess, if Trump thinks about did, did Nixon seriously ever consider pardoning himself? Was there much consideration of that? I think there. I think there was some thought of it. Um, there was uh, the. There's a play, There's a, a group within the Department of Justice called the Office of Legal Counsel, which has been around for a while, and you know a lot of really heavyweights come out of it who run it. Um, uh, Rehnquist, Scalia were both the head of it at one point. But it's really the president's law firm within the Department of Justice. When the president wants to know, can I do something or not do something, um, they kind of go and ask for opinions. Okay. And they issue opinions. They're written opinions. You can look it up. They're online. Um, and I do know that uh, that department looked at the question of whether or not uh, a president sitting president can be indicted criminally or whether you'd have to wait until after they're out of office and and they decided no you cannot indict a, a sitting president criminally you have to wait um but i also think there was some overture on whether a president could pardon himself and i'm pretty confident that there was an opinion issued that said no no person can be their own judge under our idea of law and so a president could not pardon himself. And if you read the Constitution, it doesn't even sound like, you know, he can pardon others, but it doesn't, doesn't give any hint that he could pardon himself for something. I think Professor Larry Tribe at Harvard said, too, that one of the issues that the colonists had against the King George, they said obstruction of justice because I think the king was appointing the lawyers or the judges in Massachusetts without any representation. And he said that by itself was one of our main complaints against England that was obstruction of justice. So he says that going back in time to that, and that's another reason why the president is not above the law and couldn't obstruct justice and couldn't pardon himself out of something, according to Larry, yeah, Larry Tribe. I, yeah, I think I think that's right. We were trying to get away from a tyrant, and we didn't want to create one. Can I just just going back to um, John Dean, who's a, who's a fascinating figure to me? Did he ever have any contact with Nixon after you know the rest of his life from you know seventy four on before Nixon died ninety four? Did they ever meet again or? see each other no they didn't they didn't he ran into uh, haldeman one time he said um in a parking garage and they said they should get together and meet but they never did but no he never talked with nixon I mean, nixon uh he was nixon's golden boy until he turned on him and then he was the goat and from that point forward he really wanted to crush him and um you know blamed him for a lot of the problems did, did John Dean know about the other things before, like the, the Ellsberg break-in and those things? Was he, was he aware of the other illegal activities before um, the Watergate issue came up? He was aware that Gordon Liddy was planning some screwball things, um, which he was in a couple meetings in the beginning of 72 with Mitchell and others. And he kind of just said, you know, you guys shouldn't talk about this, the attorney general's office. And walked away and thought that that was the end of it. He did not know about the Watergate break-in. Um, he learned about a lot of things like the um, Ellsberg break-in after um, the Watergate break-in. He didn't know about the Ellsberg break-in either. Um, but he learned about it, and then he was very much involved in the whole cover-up. He calls himself the linchpin of the cover-up. 
after the Watergate break-in and when he knows about all this stuff. Today, we teach lawyers, you know, if you learn about crime that's ongoing, you, you've got a lot of ethical obligations to report it. And uh, his, his role in Watergate actually helped change our legal ethics so that lawyers can now go beyond the attorney-client privilege and report on their clients if they can't stop them when they're involved in ongoing crime. So it was a major change in legal ethics. The reason we do our program is that. But he knew a lot about a lot of it. He, he, you know, acted very much like somebody who was guilty and destroyed evidence and things like that. And eventually he decided there's no way out of this except to confess and be honest about it. And that's what he ended up doing. May I just ask you to put on your, as a student of American history and as someone who's written books, and obviously you studied Warren Harding, but did have a corrupt administration, the Teapot Dome scandal, et cetera. But thinking about Trump itself and going back in American history, they were both obviously linked to Roy Cohn because um, the McCarthy hearings was Roy Cohn and then Trump's lawyer was Roy Cohn in the, in the, uh, in the 80s in New York City. But besides that link to Cohen, is there any president, uh, and obviously Cohen was not president, but just that, that influential lawyer for McCarthy, is there any president that you think of that in any way compares to Trump as far as who's willing to push boundaries or willing to you know, potentially go outside of executive authority and take actions that we would consider illegal, if not yeah. Nixon? You know, yeah, you know, it's it's there's a scale I would say, and on that scale there are you know presidents who have who have uh, extended uh, executive power. Yeah, you know, if you got you got to remember that the Constitution Article Two has about a thousand words in it. Of that, most of the, no most of it is about how you elect a president. Uh, only about two hundred twenty five words are really operative words of what the power of the presidency is. So it's very general, very open-ended, um, and the founders kind of meant it to be that way. And over time, all presidents have really pushed the boundaries of what is their proper authority, especially when it comes to things like, you know, um, acts of war and uh, under the commander-in-chief um, um, label. So, you know, there's, there's, you can argue that a lot of presidents have gone way beyond that. Um, when I wrote the Harding book, um Woodrow Wilson uh, acted very much um, like a tyrant in some ways, and there was a group called the American Protective League that was formed back then um, by the Department of Justice. And it was literally a group of about 250,000 businessmen around the country who spied on their neighbors, and they were given badges, and, you know, they made citizens' arrests, and they broke into people's homes and opened their mail. I mean, there have been times in history when we've had a lot of bad acting presidents under the executive, you know, um, powers uh, definition. So in that sense, Trump is not unusual. What's unusual about him is the crudeness of him and the um, the whole uh, idea of being, of engaging in falsehoods as a political strategy. Um, and certainly if there's, um, you know, there can be an argument that he's, that he cooperated with Russia and helping, you know, you throw an election. Right. And there's no it's going to compare to that. Uh, that's all that is way beyond just the, you know, extension and exercise of executive power. I guess. So, I, yes. I, yeah, I, so I would say, you know, I think my own personal opinion is that the torture that was authorized during the Bush one administration was the, one of the worst things ever that any president could do. Um, and, you know, I don't know that Trump is authorized torture, but he's doing things like he's doing in the, the border right now, which is just, you know, completely anti, um, 
American. I mean, it just is, we, we don't act this way with people and we don't do these things with people. Um, so um, yeah, I have very strong feelings about that. May I ask you, just uh, just going back to your book, and you mentioned one of the things in the book in regards to Nixon is the Cambodian bombings, the secret bombings of Cambodia, which is basically where the Viet Cong were using the stage hits on U.S. forces um, in Vietnam and to infiltrate uh, South Vietnam. Is it your opinion that those bombings were, were illegal? I think they were, what, 19, 1970 was when they started, the incursion into Cambodia? Yeah, yeah I, I do think that was illegal. I mean, I think that... You know, um, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that was given didn't authorize that sort of activity, and that's why it was being done in secret. Um, again, the the how you define the um, you know the powers of the uh, the military chief um, and the ability to make war um, versus declaring war, which is Congress is only allowed to do that, um, gets very fuzzy because you know self defense is one of the arguments that were made that we were in Vietnam properly and that these actions in Cambodia were um, a matter of self-defense. So it gets vague. I think it was illegal. Um, and I, in fact, there was a lot of debate about whether to include that in the articles of impeachment when they finally got around to it. Oh, and really? Okay. It was, yeah, the, the, there was a lot of people who felt very strongly that should have been an impeachable offense. Is it is it just as just as sort of a historian looking back on American history? Is it kind of odd to you after after Kennedy's book Profiles in Courage and and um, and you just think of things that we've, we've overcome in our history and we overcome McCarthy and obviously George Wallace did not become president and people that have been pushed down in the U.S. that we have someone now who can sort of essentially distort the truth and does what he does and yet there doesn't seem to be any reaction by the Republicans in, in spite of history probably shining favorably on those who would stand up for truth. Does that surprise you at all? We're at this state now in 2018? It does, frankly. I mean, I really, I, I find it hard to believe that uh, a lot of the things that Trump has been doing has not been condemned by Republicans in very strong terms and that they are not standing up to him. Uh, and I think the problem is that um, unlike any other time that I can think of, the politicians today have no idea what happened in 2016. It is a mystery as to why this sudden Trump revolt happened, and they don't know how to gauge it. They don't know how many of their constituents are secret Trump supporters. And I think they're all running scared about not wanting to offend a base of uh, voters out there who they don't even understand and can't even identify. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. I think 2016 was such a uh, bolt out of the blue that it's caused everybody to be very skittish and and they've lost their backbone. But I, all that said, I still find it hard to believe that Republicans aren't standing up to a lot of these things and to the really obnoxious tweeting and all the rest of the stuff that's been going on. If you were to make a choice right now to put in, if Nixon were still alive and he was the same age as Trump, would you rather have Nixon as president now or Trump, just based on what you know uh, up until today? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, because um, while I don't think Nixon is as evil um, a person as I think Donald Trump is, um, Nixon was very savvy, smart lawyer, had been in the government for a long time, was vice president for eight years, was a senator, a congressman. Um, he knew how to work the levers of government. So in a way, um, while he may be less evil, Nixon would be better able to work the government, as, as it were, to, uh, for bad purposes, because he ultimately was 
very lawless about the way he proceeded with his presidency. That's his problem. He really did believe that the president did it. It wasn't illegal. Right. And that's just, com- that's just completely wrong. That's what he wrong. told David so, Frost, of I course, think it, in those interviews. Yeah, right? so it, yeah, that's right. And so I, I think I would not want to have either one of them as president. I think they're both completely lawless and um, think that they can do what they want. And, and I think that is not what our Constitution is all about. Matthew, are you working on any new books now? Any other things, your writings you're considering now, or books? Yeah, in fact, right now I have a book coming out right now that is called Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1960 Cleveland. Um, and it literally is going to publish July 1, and I'm doing speaking all around about it. It is about a shootout between uh, black nationalists and Cleveland police here in, in 1950 years ago this coming july and so it's really looking at so the question is how did this happen number one how'd you get to the point where uh you had african americans attacking police with high-powered rifles uh and deliberately ambushing and shooting and killing them uh in what was clearly a political war in our streets and then the second question is so why are we here 50 years later? Why are we Why are we in the same spot 50 years later? Um, what really happened? What caused this? You know, you go to 2016, right before Donald Trump was uh, uh, nominated here in Cleveland, and two weeks before that was Dallas, where you have a African American veteran uh, taking up arms against the police, deliberately ambushing and killing, trying to kill as many white policemen as he could in retaliation for you know, all the uh, police killings of African-American men. So, you know, the question is, why are we still here 50 years later? And why are, in some ways, things worse than they were even 50 years ago? Were we on the right track back then? How can we get back to some of the things we were trying to do back then to solve the problems? Um, it's a really, it's a... Um, it's a uh, complicated book, but um, so far it's getting very nice what's reviews. The, what's the name of that book, Mr. Rosen? It's called Ballots and Bullets, Ballots and, and I, have a web, I have a website for it, which is www.ballotsandbullets, all one word, dot com. Um, and it's just about to, I've got the first copy sitting right here in my office, and the others are being printed and sent out to the bookstores right now. Well, I, I uh, look forward to reading that, and I just want to say, we're speaking with James Robinault, and the book was January 1973, and he has his new book coming out, and um, it's obviously Intelligent Talk is the program, intelligenttalk.com. Mr. Rosen, uh, Mr. Ro- Mr. Robinault, sorry, thank you so much for coming right. on the program today. I really appreciate your time. Okay, Ralph, nice talking to you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. You. Hi there, I'm Tim McGraw. One of the great things about music is how it brings people together. Kids like to hang out, listen to music, and talk about what's hot and what's not on the music scene. And playing instruments and singing provides a way for young people to get together and interact in a cooperative and respectful way. Kids who play in school ensembles understand that every part has to work together for the result to be the magical art called music. Your local school music programs provide a golden opportunity for your child to experience the rewards of learning music. Why not pay a visit to the music teacher to find out what's going on? Get your kids involved with school music. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, Gibson Musical Instruments, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education.
if you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Jane.